You're listening to a message from Doxa Church on the book of Daniel, which we believe has more relevance for the church than ever before, as Christians face the challenge to not just survive, but thrive as God's people in a changing world. For more resources, visit doxa-church.com. Daniel, t- <clears throat> Daniel 10, 12 through 21. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke. I said to him who stood before me, O my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me, and no breath is left in me. Again, One having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man greatly loved, fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of the truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning. There's a a common understanding amongst preachers that uh, whatever you're preaching, that week God will give you illustrations and stories to tell uh, leading up to it. So uh, if we were smart, uh, we would just preach about the love and blessings of God over and over and over, but we're dumb, and so sometimes we preach about spiritual warfare, and, uh, and that's what we're doing this morning. So uh, I, I made mention to the staff and the elders a couple weeks ago that, hey, we're, we're doing spiritual warfare in a couple weeks. Let's be praying because, uh, you know, like I said, we, we tend to get illustrations to use uh, in, in our sermons. And so um, I was moderately prepared for like a bad night's sleep is probably what I was prepared for. Uh, but uh, on Friday morning, I got a phone call from Pastor Alex. Joni. And uh, I don't often get phone calls from Alex, especially not on Friday morning, because he tends to try to stay away from me. And um, uh, he said, uh, he said, hey, uh, you're preaching on spiritual warfare this week, right? And I said, yeah. He goes, well, I've got a doozy for you. <laughs> Which um, <clears throat> Alex doesn't make jokes, really. So I knew that that was real. And uh, so some of you, probably most of you, hopefully, uh, received an email uh, yesterday morning uh, from Donald uh, uh, talking about a a situation that has uh, emerged in this last kind of 48 hours. 
which was what uh, Alex called to tell me about. So uh, if you don't know, and if you're new, I would say, uh, if you're new and this is your first time here, God has you here for a reason. Um, I don't know what that is, but this is a unique morning. And so if this is your first time, I would say on one hand, I'm sorry, uh, but on the other, I'm not sorry. I think, uh, I think God's got a reason for you to be here. Um, so the phone call that Alex gave me was to tell me about a young man uh, who used to go to Doxa some years ago, uh, hasn't in, in probably a, a year or two, uh, but was somewhat involved here, um, had some interactions with Alex, uh, and, uh, and, and moved on. There was some conflict. Uh, he moved on to another church. Um, since he was here with us, he has been at three other churches. Um, and this is all public knowledge. It was reported in the news, so I'm, I'm not breaking any news here. Uh, but uh, all of those churches were churches that we have some level of relationship with, from Reach Church to Cross and Crown to uh, formerly City Church, now Church Home. And uh, he, he kind of bounced and had conflict at each and every one of those churches uh, and until that started to get kind of darker and darker. And he recently threatened uh, Cross and Crown Church with uh, violence. And uh, uh, again, this was all reported in the news, but uh, in the aftermath of the shooting in Texas a couple weeks ago, um, he reached out to Cross and Crown via email, uh, kind of wishing that that had been them. And uh, at that point, the uh, police arrested him when he took him into custody and uh, uh, found uh, that he had some level of uh, plans and, and desire to carry out those plans. Uh, but he was arrested. Uh, he was released uh, more recently on bail. Uh, all, of his, uh, all of his weapons and things were, were removed. Uh, and, uh, and like we said in the email, there's no indication at all that he uh, harbors ill will towards Doxa in any way. Uh, but because of the connection we have to him and because of the seriousness of, of his communication with Cross and Crown, um, it, it, it caused really the last two days, which are supposed to be my days off, uh, to be uh, involved in a number of security briefings and, uh, and, and plans and strategies for this morning in case uh, there was a situation. And, and I'll, I'll say this, uh, this in my mind is an apocalyptic moment. Okay, we've been talking about apocalypse uh, for the last couple weeks in Daniel. Again, if you're new, we're in week nine of a nine-week series in Daniel. And uh, I, I think that this is an apocalyptic moment. And, and what I don't mean by that is that this is a sign of the end times. That's not what we're talking about. It's not been what we've been talking about uh, through, through Daniel at all. As Daniel has received these visions and dreams, uh, we've talked about how the very nature of apocalypse as a literary genre that, by the way, is not unique to Christianity. It's just a broader literary genre. Is not necessarily a, a foretelling of the future, but an unveiling. Apocalypse literally means unveiling. Okay. So I, I think a moment like this is an apocalyptic moment. Not because it suggests something about the end times, but because it unveils a reality that has always been true, but we have, for a variety of reasons, been blind to it. 
because of prosperity, because of luxury, because of relative safety in our world, uh, we, we are kind of blind to danger. We are blind to this kind of hatred. It's, it's interesting to me to talk to people who live in other places, like Nagin, who is just up here fleeing her home uh, because of religious persecution. I mean, that's a reality for a great number of people in our world, Christian and Muslim and many others. So this moment is an apocalyptic moment in the sense that it reveals uh, a, a dynamic that's always going on, but we are often blind to it. So one of the metaphors that we've used throughout the, especially the second half of this series, is that of the split screen. So, um, I've been doing a lot of this and some of this uh, for the last couple of weeks, and some of you have been doing it to me, and it's, I appreciate it. Uh, but, the, uh, but the idea has been that when Daniel is receiving these visions and dreams about kind of crazy rams and goats and all kinds of stuff, that the best way to understand it is that God was saying, listen, you experience the world in, in what we've called the imminent frame. This is uh, Charles Taylor, philosopher Charles Taylor's language, but the, a framework that says all that that's real is what is imminent. What we can taste and touch and see and hear, the physical world is all that is real. And many of these visions and dreams were God essentially saying to Daniel, I'm going to unveil to you the deeper reality, which is the fact that this imminent frame is not all there is, that there is also a transcendent frame. That while Babylon is in power and is soon to be overcome by the Medes and Persians and then by the Greeks and then by the Romans, all the while there is this transcendent frame which is in the heavenlies that God is sovereign over all of it. That nothing down here happens without the approval of what's going on up here. So um, this week we're going to look at just a couple of verses in these three passages, uh, Daniel 10, 11, and 12, which makes up one moment in Daniel's life. And talk about the interplay between the imminent frame and the transcendent. Between our world and the spiritual realm, as the scriptures call it. And the, and the kind of interplay between those two that we call spiritual warfare. Okay? So, to do that, I want to look at four verses, four little passages in these three chapters. First, chapter 10, verses 5 and 6. He says, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Euphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. That is not how you describe a human being. I have never been described that way. Face like lightning? No. Other things, yes, not lightning. Okay? This is an appearance of some heavenly being. And this is, this is not the first time. All of Daniel has been full of, of angels and people talking to, to Daniel about all, all these things and unveiling these dreams and visions to him. So we see here that, again, a, a heavenly being, some think this is what theologians will call a theophany, which is an appearance of God. Some would say this is an angel. It's unclear what it is. 
But if you skip down to verse 13, that being, that angel probably, is telling Daniel that even though Daniel started praying three weeks ago, and we saw at the beginning of chapter 10, we see at the beginning of chapter 10, that he says, I prayed for three weeks, which meant he started praying and the angel didn't show up for three weeks. And he's going to tell Daniel why that happened. So start in verse 12. He said to me, fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me for I was left there with the king of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. So is this angel saying that he was trying to get to Daniel, but like got stopped at the border by like the actual human prince of Persia? No. This is very common biblical language, especially Old Testament language, to talk about the princes of a kingdom, and these are essentially demons. Demons. So what the angel is saying is, I was trying to get to you, Daniel, from the first time you started praying, but these demons stopped me, and they held me up for three weeks, and they did war. They battled in the heavenlies for three weeks until Michael, who other other places in scripture calls an archangel or a chief of princes, came to help in this battle. They eventually overcame this demon, and so that this angel could finally get to Daniel. That's what's happening. Number three, verses 20 and 21. Chapter 10, verses 20 and 21. He says, then he said, do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side except these, Michael, your prince. So it seems as if in this spiritual realm, in this transcendent frame, that there are demons kind of assigned to, in some sense, these kingdoms. That there is the prince over Babylon, there's a prince over Greece, who is yet to come. And then lastly, in chapter 12, verse 1, he says, at that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. So there's also Michael, who in some sense, apparently, is overseeing Israel, is their guardian angel, so to speak. Okay. So for those of you in the room who are not Christian, let me say something really clear right now. Christians throughout history have always believed that there is a reality beyond the one that we all know. And we have believed... Though we haven't talked about it much, we'll get to that in a minute, but we have always believed that there is such a thing as angels and demons, that God is real, that Satan is real, and that there is a real battle going on unseen to us for the most part in this transcendent frame in this heavenly realm. This passage calls it out as specifically as you're ever going to find, but we see it all throughout the New Testament as well. Paul calls it powers and principalities in Ephesians 6. Peter says in 1 Peter 5 that your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. This is happening all the time. So what I want to suggest this morning is that a moment like this in our lives, 
a, a, a moment, an experience like this one where there is a very clear attack, there is a very clear sense of danger, that these moments are meant to be apocalyptic to us to unveil what is actually a very ordinary thing. So what I want us to get to this morning is an awareness of an ordinary living in view of the split screen. That spiritual warfare is not meant to be just the realm of the crazy and the spectacular, but that it is actually regular, ordinary, and normal. And that the only reason that it has become, for many of us, this idea of the spectacular, crazy, weird stuff is because, as we've talked about in the last couple weeks, we, even we Christians, have allowed this imminent frame to, to contain all of our faith. So we, we talked about this two weeks ago, if you'll remember. That it's not just atheists or non-Christians or secular people who have this imminent frame. That functionally speaking, many Christians live out their faith ignoring the transcendent. And we try to fit our faith into just this imminent frame so that it seems plausible, it seems like objective, it seems like, you know, my, my coworker at Microsoft or Amazon or wherever you are, they, they could understand that. Because it's none of the weird stuff. Let's just ignore the weird stuff for a while and just talk about this stuff. And so what happens is Christianity gets reduced down to knowing the right things and doing the right things. Because those things are both very tangible, very simple, very imminent, that there's, we can learn. We, we, everybody thinks learning is good, so we want to know the right things, and then we want to be generally moral people, live out those right things. And that a, a Christianity boxed into that imminent frame is a Christianity that is essentially just knowing and doing. Which for many of us, we go, what else is there? I know, I, I know all the things and I'll even Christianize the word and say, I believe all the right things. And I, and I do the right things. I obey God. What else is there? Well, God. Because a faith that is purely knowing and doing has no need of an actual relationship with an actual God. Because my faith is judged by how much I know and how much I do. And how much I do, if I'm, if I'm failing in the do, then all I need to do is, is know more. And so if I know more, then I'll do more. If I'm not doing enough, then I don't know enough. And so i got to know more so I can do more. And at no point do we need a savior except that we should know about him and have the right atonement theory about him. So the cross becomes something to analyze and know things about rather than to behold and glory in. Okay. So what happens in, in that kind of Christianity is all the weird stuff, which is to say God, gets kind of ignored because it's just, it's just weirder than can make sense. It's just, I, I wouldn't want to talk about that stuff with my coworkers. I want to talk about knowledge and the things that we know, what makes sense about our faith and how our faith is a very logical faith, and then my morality, and I'm going to care for the poor, I'm going to do these things, I'm going to, I'm going to be good. 
But all the stuff about having a relationship with God and actually knowing God and praying to God and hearing from God, especially hearing from God, it's one thing to talk to God, but it should stay there. I don't want to hear from him. I can't hear from him because that would be weird. What gets lost in that is any sense of the spiritual realm and, and spiritual warfare itself. But it shouldn't. And so my, my hope and my prayer is that a moment like this honestly causes a fear in us that, co- that, that causes an emotional reaction in us that we then look to this imminent frame and go, okay, whoa, I can't find the answer here. There's, there's nothing here. There's no amount of, 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 of protection. There's no amount of strategy. There's no amount of weapons. There's no amount of uh, security. There's no, I can't be protected. This is why God brings suffering and pain into your life. Just this week, one of my friends was feeling sick and had been feeling like he had the flu for just a little bit longer than was comfortable. And so he went to the doctor and the doctor says, you've got lymphoma. He's in his early 50s. Family man. And they said, it's, it's the bad kind. I mean, we can try to do some things, but there's no way to know if it'll work. And there's nothing here that can save him. And so for many of us, when we, when we have our, our, our life together for the most part, there's nothing, there's nothing in our experience that makes us think that all the solutions aren't also here. There's nothing that causes us to have to do this until inevitably there is. Until there is pain, until there is loss, until there is danger, until there is fear, which makes us go, okay, maybe not all the answers can be found here. And then in that moment we go, oh, what do I do? What we ought to have done is understand this split screen idea as the ordinary, as the normal, as the default of our lives. So that like my friend who hears lymphoma doesn't freak out and go, oh, well then I need God. He goes, no, I've always had God. I know exactly where to go. Because God is sovereign over these things and God does miracles. God intervenes. God, this is a war in the, in the heavenlies before it's ever a disease in my body. So, uh, Richard Loveless wrote a book called Dynamics of the Spiritual Life and it's kind of a, it's the book uh, for evangelicals and theology of the Holy Spirit and these kinds of things. It's fantastic. He calls out four specific strategies that Satan uses against God's people. And I, I want to go through those strategies really quickly. Um, and and just, to, just so we're aware of those things. Because I, I think sometimes if we talk about Satan, if we think about Satan, we think about it in the big stuff. The big temptations, the the big moments. And what I want to show us today is, yes, those big moments happen, but far more often, it's subtle, it's normal, it's ordinary, it's regular, but it's ongoing. I I had someone between services say, I hate thinking about this stuff because I just don't want to, I just don't want to know it's happening which I totally can understand, but that's literally like saying, it's like standing in the middle of a battle, like in the middle of a battle and just going, nah, I think I'm just going to pretend that's not happening all around me. 
So you can either understand you're in battle and fight, or you can die. Those are our options. So let's not die, okay? Four ways that Satan tempts us or uh, works in our lives, attacks us. One is temptation. Matthew chapter four, verse three. Matthew calls Satan the tempter, says the tempter came and said to him, Jesus, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now, does Satan tempt us to outright sin? Yeah, absolutely. All the time. Satan brings images, ideas, and people, and things, and experiences, and moments into our lives to draw us off the path and into sin. There's no question about that. But I think what most often he does is that he tempts us little by little by little, right? Like nobody wakes up addicted to crack. Like, you don't go from nothing to crack overnight. That's not how that happens. There's steps along the way, little moments along the way that eventually move you, move you. Because if if Satan came to you today and said, hey, how about crack? Most of us, I think, would go, nah. Like, no, I don't, no, I don't think so. I mean, certainly, I don't mean to make light of those who have struggled with drug addiction because that's very real, but my guess is you didn't, it didn't happen to you that way either. That it was one degree and one degree and one degree and one degree and one degree. Um, I, whenever I am dealing with big issues and important things, I go two places. One, the Bible. Two, C.S. Lewis. Uh, he wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters about spiritual warfare, and it's, uh, the, the, the idea is that it's an older senior demon writing letters to a younger demon, instructing him how to uh, kind of corrupt this man that this younger demon has been in charge of. And he gives him this uh, advice at one point in the book. He says, you will say that these are very small sins, and doubtless, like all young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. But do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy, which is God. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Little by little by little by little. If you are on a journey and your destination is in sight and you make a turn of just 1%, just 1%, it's just so little, it's just from here to here, a thousand miles down the road, how far away will you be from your destination? That wasn't an actual question, and for those of you who are trying to figure out the answer, it's far. That's the point. Even one degree off your destination at the end of your life has turned you away. So Satan will not come to you and tempt you by saying, hey, let's go do crack together. He will just turn one step 
at a time, little by little by little. Because, and here's what we have to, we have to understand. Satan hates you. Hates you. And, and his aim is to destroy you. Ruin your life and destroy you. And the ultimate destruction is not financial ruin. It's not loss of relationship. It's, it, it's not loss of reputation. The ultimate destruction is separation from God. And so that is his aim. When he tempts you, he's not tempting you into sin just for its own sake. He's tempting you into sin because that's away from God. He's not tempting you towards anything in particular as if one thing was worse than another. He is simply tempting you away from the one thing that brings life. And he will use any means necessary simply to take your gaze off of God. Even, and let's be clear, Satan doesn't want you to read your Bible and he doesn't want you to obey God. But he does want you to read your Bible and obey God if that means you miss God. He is all about your Bible study if that means you're not actually engaging God and you're just trying to figure out a text. And he will absolutely encourage your obedience and disciplined righteousness if that means you are dulled to your need for a savior. That's a huge win. That's got to be the most ironic of wins. Temptation is not just the big stuff. It's anything that diverts our eyes from God. Number one, temptation. Number two, Deception. Deception isn't obvious by definition. It's an obscuring. It's calling things something that they are not. We are deceived into thinking good is bad and up is down, yes, but not brazenly so. Again, this isn't the crazy deception. This isn't magic tricks. It's little things. It's ordinary warfare. Again, from Lewis. He says, man has been accustomed ever since he was a boy to having a dozen incompatible philosophies dancing about together inside his head. He doesn't think of doctrines as primarily true or false, but as academic or practical, outworn or contemporary, conventional or ruthless. Jargon, not argument, is your best ally in keeping him from the church. Don't waste time trying to make him think that materialism is true, Make him think it is strong or stark or courageous. That is the philosophy of the future. That's the sort of thing he cares about. Why? Why would Satan and his demons not want to argue true or false? Because the ground of true and false is the ground of God. Satan always loses that battle. And so instead of engaging and trying to make things that are true into things that are false, he shifts the categories to say, well, this is kind. This is accepting. This is open-minded. This is affirming. This is loving. Never mind true or false. It's generous. 
No doubt you've been in a conversation in your life at times where you were trying to talk about the truthfulness of an idea only to have the person that you were talking to want to talk about the generosity of the idea. Not interested in all, maybe even at times mocking the idea of whether it's true or not. It doesn't matter if it's true. Think about how loving this might be. But falsehood is never loving. Because falsehood is deception. And deception is the tool of Satan. And Satan hates you. We are deceived at times simply through the obscuring of the question. Number three, accusation or condemnation. Some of you are being told regularly, and I have heard it from you, that you are too broken, too far away, too sinful, too used up to be loved or forgiven. That you've gone too far, that you've done too much. That you are too evil. Don't pray God does not want to hear from you right now. Don't even try to repent. You need to, you need to process this a little bit more before you come to repent of it. Yeah, I don't think you're ready to repent. You're not, you're not worthy of even repenting. You shouldn't go before God until you get this thing figured out a little more, and then you can come before him. That's accusation. It's condemnation. And it's false. In fact, this is the most brazen affront to the gospel of them all. Because in essence, Satan is saying to you, what you have done, you, what you have done is so heinous and so disgusting and so perverted and so broken that God is powerless to intervene. You, your brokenness is more powerful than God. You're more powerful than God. He's seen what you've done and he's weeping, huddled in the corner, wishing he could save you, but he just can't because it's too bad. It's too broken. That's a lie. There is nothing that the most perverted mind that human history has ever produced. There's nothing that that mind has done or conceived of that God's grace has not already been victorious over. In Romans chapter 8, Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law, the spirit of life, has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. It's wrong because it's already lost. The resurrection defeated Satan's sin and death. It showed that there's nothing you can do. There's nothing you could even imagine doing. There's nothing that 10 of you or a million of you putting your heads together to think about the worst possible thing that could be done that hasn't already been paid for on the cross and hasn't already been defeated in the resurrection. Nothing. So when you hear that accusation, you don't have to bow up and say, no, I am good enough. No, you're not good enough. He is, he's already defeated it. It's over, it's done. Number four. At times, Satan uses direct physical attack or possession. And I know that for some, that sounds crazy and outlandish and the kind of thing you only see in the movies. And yet for others that are in this room that I know have experienced it firsthand, have seen it. 
have felt it. It's, it's in many ways the, the, the last resort of desperation. In other ways, it's the height of arrogance that Satan could just come out into the open and do something so direct in that way. And I think to some degree, that's what we're experiencing right now in this situation with this young man. Blatant, brazen evil. So what do we do? Do we freak out? I don't think so. Richard Loveless, again, in Dynamics of Spiritual Life, ends his chapter on spiritual warfare with this summation, and I think uh, it's, it's worth our time. He says, the Bible says simply, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. The first phrase here might be translated, order your lives under God. In effect, it means that a Christian should come fully into the light of Christ's redemptive provisions for him as he opposes the forces of darkness, laying hold by faith of every dimension of strength with which his union with Christ endues him. I am accepted by God as righteous. I am delivered from the power of sin. I am not alone, for I have the Holy Spirit as a counselor, and I have authority against fallen spirits. This is beautifully expressed in John Bunyan's image of the powers of darkness as lions chained on a short tether on either side of the road to the celestial city in the Pilgrim's Progress. These lions can maul travelers who wander from the middle of the path, but cannot touch those who walk precisely in the center. This metaphor emphasizes that Christian warfare is not a conflict in which the sides are in any way equivalent, a Manichaean struggle between equal powers of good and evil. The forces of darkness are so chained by the victory of Christ that they are unable to do anything which does ultimate damage to his glory and kingdom. The battles we fight against them should not be occasions of anxiety. They force us back to reliance on Christ's redemptive work and enhance our dignity and authority as redeemed sinners who have the power to judge angels. In other words, center yourself on the gospel so that you might know what that true destination is and all of the temptation and the deception, all of the accusation rings hollow because you can identify it for what it is. When you know what the path is, temptation is obvious. It's towards the lions. When you know the truth of the gospel. Deception is obvious because it obscures where the gospel makes clear. When we are under condemnation and accusation, it's foolishness to us because we know who we are in Christ. Paul gives us a, a very practical path forward in Ephesians chapter 6. If you want to turn there quickly, we'll end with this. The armor of God is uh, something that you've probably, if you grew up in church, you probably learned it first on a felt board, uh, and that's great. But he starts in chapter 6, verse 10, essentially repeating what Loveless said and what James said in James 4, 7. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. 
Be secure in him, in his strength. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth against those lies of Satan and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Whose righteousness? His righteousness, not our own. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace so that fear might not paralyze us, we put on shoes of peace so that we might run. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. I want you to notice something about this. Because I think in our, in our natural humanness, maybe some of our Americanness, we think, okay, this is my armor. I'm going to put it on so that I can go fight. But, but think about this. What you putting on armor says about you. If, if you need a helmet and you need a breastplate and you need fancy shoes and you need a sword and you need a belt, what does that mean about you? You're weak. You're vulnerable. You can't do it yourself. The the message isn't in the face of this spiritual warfare to bow up and beat Satan because you're bigger and badder. No. That's my temptation. It might be yours as well. But what Paul says here is you can't. If you go into battle by yourself, you will die. You need a helmet so that when the attacker comes, he doesn't split your head open. You need a breastplate so that when he attacks you, he doesn't kill you. You need a sword so that you can fight. You need a shield so that you can be protected. You need. So every morning we might put on these clothes like many of you put on clothes unthinkingly every morning. When you go out of the house, you put on clothes and you probably don't think about it much. I mean, I've seen what you wear. (laughs) You're not thinking about it. The, The idea is that we would in the same way put on the armor of God day after day after day after day so that we might become fluent in it. Think about it this way. This, this picture uh, uh, makes us think about like a Roman centurion, right? With the breastplate and the shield and the sword and the, the whole thing. Well, all that Roman centurions do every day to train is to not have to think about it. So that when they're fighting, I mean, the Mongols, I guess, and, uh, and there's a big battle axe coming towards that Roman centurion that he doesn't go, okay, battle axe, I should go shield probably. Yeah, okay, shield. No, dead. He's dead at that point, right? All of the training that the Roman centurion receives is so that he goes, battle axe, shield, boom, sword, done. 
that he learns how to rely not on his own strength, but on the gifts he's been given by God. All of this is so that we might be aware and dependent on the one who has real strength. That we might have the eyes of faith, the lens through which to see the faith so that we can hear those accusations and know they're accusations and they're not true. That we can see the temptation and we know that that's temptation because that's not good. That we can see the deception for what it is because it's obscure and the gospel always brings clarity. We are in exile. Hopefully you have been awoken to that reality through this series. Life in exile means that we can't coast anymore. The people, structures, and systems that have propped up our faith and life are gone and we are left to stand on our own. Worse, at times some of those same systems that propped up our faith are now actively trying to knock it down. Some people who have been such a source of encouragement and stability are now alienating and abandoning us. What was once easy has now become hard. What was once absent-minded must now be intentional. What was once unconscious must now be conscious. But no matter how dark the world around us appears to be, we must remember John's words in the first chapter of his gospel. The light shines in the darkness And the darkness has not overcome it. The gift of exile is sight. The gift of exile is an awareness of what has always been. But prosperity, luxury, safety, boredom, ignorance, laziness has blinded us to. May we see with clear eyes the truth of the world around us, most importantly, the love, mercy, grace, and strength of our God who fights for us. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you fight for us. That you have not simply opened our eyes to the battle, given us a little training, and sent us off to fight but that you have already won this battle. And the fights we fight now are just the the leftover remnants until the war is declared over. And even in those little skirmishes, you still fight on our behalf. Lord, we thank you. God, I, I pray that we would see the world for what it is that we would recognize that our, power, our, our battle, our war is not against flesh and blood, that the people around us are not our enemies. That is a lie from Satan, that the people are our enemies. The people around us are image bearers of God, made by you, loved by you. Our enemy is in the heavenlies. That's where the battle has taken place. So, Lord, we pray that you would save, that you would heal, that you would redeem those enemies around us, our captors in exile. Lord, we pray that you would save this young man. 
that you would heal him, that you would redeem him for your glory and his good. God, do a miracle in his life. Send your angels to do battle on his behalf. God, we love you. Praise you. In Christ's name, amen.